Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter in my Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'll invite you to be finding that chapter in your Bible as well. As part of our worship is devoted to the reading and the study and the discussion and the consideration of God's Word. And so let's all be looking at the Scriptures together. 1 Corinthians 11 will be our first stop. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, let me just join in the welcome that was extended earlier. What a great number we have in attendance. I was this close to getting up in the pulpit. I've always said if we fill up all the pews, I'll get up there. We were missing out on this row right here. And so, Glenn, you guys are going to get spit on. and that's, oh, You're going to move up here now, okay. <clears throat> but we're so glad that you're here today. We do have a number of guests and we're appreciative of your presence. We're just so glad that you chose to come and to worship with us here at Lakeside this morning. Hope that you find everything that we're doing today to be done in spirit and in truth and in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament. Your presence is it's an encouragement to all the other people who are sitting in this room. And I want you to know that you can be a special encouragement to me right now by listening carefully and attentively to all the things that are said and weigh those things against the Scriptures to see if they're true. Let's do that right now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm reading here beginning in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today is commonly known as Easter Sunday. It is a day when people all the world over will pause and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus the Christ from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago. And while I am absolutely thankful to God that Jesus was raised from the dead all those years ago, and while I am also delighted that people seemingly everywhere today are thinking about the Lord, giving some attention to the Lord on this particular day, the truth of the matter is, the New Testament is silent about Easter. In fact, the New Testament is silent concerning any kind of annual observance related to the birth of our Lord, the life of the Lord, the death of the Lord, the resurrection of the Lord, or even the ascension of the Lord. There is no indication in the New Testament documents that the church in the New Testament, the church that labored under inspired apostles, ever observed any kind of yearly memorial to Christ. However, they did have this Memorial, The one that 1 Corinthians 11 says was instituted by Jesus Himself. The one that commemorates, verse 26, the Lord's death. The one that those first century Christians observed every first day of the week. We call that memorial the Lord's Supper. And in just a few minutes, we will do what we do every single Sunday here at Lakeside. And that is we will partake of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine in memory of Christ's sacrificial death. Of course, it's right about then as we talk about taking of the Lord's Supper that frequently, it's right about then that maybe some of our friends start to ask some questions like, you guys take the Lord's Supper every single week? Yes. Yes, we do. And 
prompts them to want to ask this follow-up question. They'll usually kind of choose their words very, very carefully. They'll ask, well, doesn't that ever become, I don't know, boring? Doesn't that ever become, I don't know, kind of common, maybe even a little bit mundane? And usually we're pretty quick to jump in there and say, absolutely not. This is one of the most important parts of our worship. It's one of the most important things that Christians do. It is the essential way for us to start every single week by remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We'd be very quick to make those points. We'd be very quick to say those things. But sometimes, let's just be honest, it can become common. And it can become mundane. It can become this exercise that we just kind of do for about ten minutes or so between the giving and the closing announcements, and then we go about just the rest of our day and our business. It can become this, this activity that since we do do it with such great frequency and regularity, it can become a habit that we just mindlessly go through the motions of without giving it the true weight and import, and force, and focus that it rightly deserves. And I say that not meaning to make a knock against our song leaders who select songs to get our minds thinking about the Lord and His death. And that's not a knock on the men who preside at the table and serve at the table and make comments and lead us in prayers to direct our minds toward the Lord's death. No, rather what I'm talking about is I'm talking about a failure that often happens on our part, on the part of individual worshipers. I'm talking about how I know that I need to do a better job at proclaiming the Lord's death. That is, remembering it, understanding it, appreciating it, embracing it in a way that affects my life and brings honor unto God through the observance of the Lord's Supper. I want to do that in the very best way possible, don't you? I want to worship in a way that pleases my Heavenly Father. And if that is your desire, then this sermon this morning is for you. This entire sermon this morning is devoted to helping us get focused on the Lord's death in preparation for the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. And the way that I'd like to do that this morning is by sharing something with you that is certainly not original with me, but it is something that has helped me tremendously in getting my own thoughts centered and focused on Jesus and on His death. I'm calling it this morning, the Lord's death by the numbers. Because I want to share with you seven things corresponding to the numbers one through seven that remind us of various aspects of Jesus' death. Seven things that help our minds to get trained in the right direction every Lord's day. And in fact, seven things that ought to impact our walk with the Lord on a day-to-day basis. But make no mistake about it. Everything that I am about to say for the next few minutes, it is designed first and foremost to get us ready for what's going to take place at this table in just about 30 minutes time. Seven things that I believe we do well to try to commit to memory as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's all going to begin with that number one. Whenever we think about Jesus' death, we need to remember that there is only and there is always One Lord. We need to be mindful of the fact that no one else was willing. No one else was able. No one else was qualified to do what Jesus did. And if it had not been for what Jesus did, there would not have been a sacrifice. 
And if it had not been for what Jesus did, you could partake of any number of emblems, any number of times, any days of the week, and still you would be dead in your sins. Do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas in John the 14th chapter? In John chapter 14, as Jesus tells His apostles about the fact that He is about to leave them, that He's going to prepare a place for them, Thomas then asked some questions about that. Lord, where are you going? How do you get there? How do we get to where you're going? You remember Jesus' response in John 14, verse 6? Jesus said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, if it had not been for Jesus, none of us would ever be able to find our way to the Heavenly Father. And of course you understand that that became the central thrust, the central point of gospel preaching all throughout the first century. In Acts chapter 4, for example, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were threatened over their preaching, this radical message that they were teaching, do you remember their response to the Sanhedrin council? The council said, you guys better shut up that Jesus stuff. What they say in Acts 4 and verse 12? They said, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you are sitting here this morning and you are saved, it is because of Jesus. If you are sitting here this morning and you ever hope to be saved, it will only be because of Jesus. He is the only one who could be the one time for all time perfect sacrifice for sin. And that is why I believe my initial thought every single Sunday should be about the one Lord who gave everything to offer my salvation. As I'm thinking about the death of that one Lord, it is worth considering that Jesus was not the only person who died that fateful day. Because there was also at Calvary two criminals. In Matthew's account of the gospel in Matthew 27 and verse 38, Matthew says that two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Just picture that in your mind. Is there a more powerful or perfect backdrop to emphasize the purity of Jesus? That on either side of Him were these criminals, stained by the darkness and the ugliness of sin, yet right there in the middle, in stark contrast, standing out almost as if in bright, vivid colors, was the pure, unadulterated, spotless Son of God. You know, sometimes whenever we talk about those two criminals, we point out how each of them had a different response to Jesus, and we are going to get to that in just a couple of moments. But in the beginning, they're both in the exact same boat. And one of those criminals astutely observed that in Luke 23 and in verse 41. He said, this man, this Jesus guy, he's done nothing wrong. But we, we are being punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. And I think it makes us a little bit uncomfortable to have to admit this. But those two criminals... They represent all of us. Because just like them, we are sinners. We are deserving of death because of our sins. We are unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God. And I believe that whenever we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, 
I believe we would do well to try to put ourselves in the shoes of those criminals. To picture ourselves as if we are one of those guys. And you can take your pick. It really doesn't matter which one you choose. Because at the end of the day, the only one of those men who were on that hill that afternoon, the only one who deserved to live was the man in the middle. You and I ain't him. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And those two criminals at Calvary, they serve as a constant reminder to us that if it were not for Jesus, we would be lost. We'd be lost in our sins and we would be lost eternally because of our sins. Which leads me to now say a word about the number three. Because if you just do a little bit of math there, one Lord plus two criminals... That equals three crosses. Now you need to understand, and I trust that you do, that there were, on that day at Calvary, there were three literal wooden crosses mounted on that hill. And each of those three men, they were literally, physically affixed to those three crosses. But did you know that regularly throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the imagery of a cross in a figurative sense, that he'll talk about the idea of a cross in a spiritual connotation. For example, in Luke chapter 9 and in verse 23, Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, that's not talking about taking a literal, physical cross-section of wooden beams and hoisting it on your shoulders and dragging it around every single day. What Jesus is saying, though, is that in order for us to be a Christian, in order for us to serve Him, there is a weight that every disciple must be willing to bear. It is a weight that you will carry with you everywhere that you go and in everything that you do. And no matter how heavy that burden may be, you will carry it from now until the moment that you see Jesus face to face. So the question is this morning... Which of those three crosses are you willing to affix yourself to? Let's talk first of all about that cross that Jesus bore. What Jesus bore was He bore the weight of the redemption of all mankind. He bore the weight of God's eternal plan to save us from our sins. He carried that weight to the grave and then He punctuated it by His resurrection from the grave. None of us I don't care how good you are. None of us can carry that cross. None of us are able to carry the cross of redemption. Jesus and Jesus alone was able to carry that cross. But there were two other crosses, weren't there? What about those other crosses that the other two criminals bore? Well, as you turn back to Luke chapter 23, we noticed there a second ago. In Luke chapter 23, what you'll see is you'll see that one of those criminals, he carried a cross... And that cross was the heavy burden of rebellion. In fact, from the very early hours of his crucifixion, he was hurling abuse and mean and slanderous things at Jesus. All the way to the very end of the crucifixion, Luke 23 verse 39 says that he continued to blaspheme and to hurl insults at Jesus Christ. This guy was rebellious down to the very last moment. Now I need to ask you, and I want to direct this question specifically to any in attendance this morning who are not Christians. Do you understand just how heavy the cross of rebellion is? 
Do you understand? Do you have any concept of the weight that you are carrying? You might think, well, I'm not carrying around any weight. Yes, you are. The weight of knowing that you are a sinner, knowing that you stand condemned because of your sins, carrying around the guilt and the shame of your sins, and then even in the face of salvation, to continue to just defiantly carry that cross all the way to the grave. That's what that guy did in Luke 23. And I wonder, is there somebody sitting here in this assembly this morning who's allowing their pride or just stubborn, hard-hearted rebellion to prevent you from putting that cross down and picking up another one? You might be asking, well, what other cross could there be? Well, there was the third cross. The cross that you can choose to bear that is exemplified well by that criminal who bore humble repentance. He is the one who in Luke 23, verse 42, he turned to Jesus and he begged. He begged for mercy when he said, Jesus, please remember me when you come in your kingdom. And I will tell you that as wonderful as that cross is, it also is a heavy burden to bear. That change of mind and attitude, that's what repentance is, that then leads to a change of life and conduct and behavior... That is not light. That is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. It takes humility. It takes a tender heart. It takes self-awareness. It takes faith and it takes courage. But I want you to know that it is the cross of repentance that then grants us access to the marvelous redemption and forgiveness that is found only in Christ Jesus. The question is, which cross are you bearing? You can't be bearing that first one because none of us are able to. Which of those other two crosses are you bearing? And by the way, Christian, you understand that an essential part of the Lord's Supper, if you were to continue on reading in 1 Corinthians 11 where we started, an essential part of that is that we're going to do some self-examination. Verse 28, let a man examine himself. As we examine ourselves, this is probably one of the things we want to think about. Which cross am I bearing? Am I typified by that rebellious criminal who carried that cross? Or would my life better be characterized right now by that cross of humble repentance. Which one are you? One Lord. Two criminals who represent sin. Three crosses that represent three very different life choices. And then comes number four. Would you find John 19 please in your Bible? In John chapter 19 we are indebted to John and to his gospel for the things that we're about to read because if it were not for John recording these things, I wouldn't have a number four. I wouldn't know what to plug in for number four. But John helps us here. In John 19, look in verse 23. In John 19 and in verse 23, the Bible says that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. John's gospel tells us that while Jesus was giving his life, giving his life for the salvation of every person that was present on that day and for every person who would ever live, John tells us that four soldiers, four soldiers were too busy to look up at their Savior. 
They were too occupied by something that was too important in their lives. And what was that something? Greed. The desire for things. Material things. Here was this wonderful piece of fabric that was now available to them. Hey, who's going to get this? This is worth some money here. And so what did they do? They began to tear it and divide it into four pieces. And you can almost picture, I always try to picture this scene in my mind. You can see them sitting down, maybe down on their down on their knees. They're all down there at the foot of the cross and they're going through all of this ordeal. And they're making sure, hey, you better make sure your piece is the same as my piece. I don't want to get shortchanged here. I want to get exactly what I deserve here. And while Jesus is above them, pouring out His life, they were fighting on the ground over a piece of cloth, casting lots then for that one final piece that was too nice to rip and to tear up. Which means that that tunic that didn't get tore up but instead was gambled for, that means that one of those guys that day proudly got to take home Jesus' tunic after He was crucified. I must admit to you that of all the seven things that I'm sharing with you today, it is these four soldiers that really hits me the hardest. In fact, it was during the Lord's Supper just a few weeks ago that the thought of these four guys, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And you want to know why? Because these four guys reminded me of me. We live in a world full of fabrics and tunics and woven pieces that capture our attention. And they come to us in many other forms, not in the form of clothing necessarily. They come to us in other forms like our jobs or our hobbies or our cars, or our homes, or goods, or sports, or whatever it may be. And there are times in our lives where we get so enamored, so preoccupied with those things that while Jesus is reigning and ruling on His throne as the Savior of the world, we just really don't have a lot of time to look up and notice Him. Just like these four men. Men who I will remind you that Jesus died to save. We too are often just unimpressed by what Jesus did. Unaffected by what the Lord did. Too self-centered, caught up in ourselves because our hearts are set on other things. And I've got to tell you, that is exactly why I never tire of prayers at the table where a brother says, Lord... Help us to remove from our minds the cares of this world. I am so appreciative of that prayer every single time. And why? Because those things, they just don't matter. They don't matter. What matters is Christ and Him crucified. In fact, when this world ends and eternity officially begins, you want to know what one thing we'll still be talking about? still be thinking about, still be singing about in heaven? I tell you this, it's not about that great vacation you took. It won't be how many home runs your kid hit in t-ball this season. It's not going to be that great promotion that you got at work. What we'll be talking about in heaven for all of eternity is worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 5 verse 12. He is worthy. He is worthy of our undivided attention and devotion, and gratitude, and service, both now and for all time. Those four soldiers, what they remind us is that we should never be distracted 
by the things of this material world. Things that just don't matter. But instead, we should look up in awe at the Lamb who was slain and then be shaped by Him entirely. Fifthly, this morning, as we consider the Lord's death, we know that a big part of the Lord's death was His suffering. And that's why the number five helps us to think about those five wounds that were inflicted upon Him. And in fact, those wounds began to be inflicted upon Him well before the actual crucifixion. We read, for example, in Mark 15 and in verse 15, that His back would have been severely beaten by that process known in Roman times as scourging. If you've ever watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ... Maybe you saw the miniseries, the Bible, and you saw the episodes about Jesus and His crucifixion. Then maybe you kind of already have some ideas, some mental images in your mind of what that process would have been like. Repeated lashes with a leather whip over and over and over again. A whip that I will also tell you would have contained upon it bits and pieces of stone, sharp metal and glass and bone. Those things that would have been brought down upon Jesus' back and literally would have tore the flesh, leaving His back in ribbons. And that wasn't it. Those Roman soldiers then, we're told in Mark 15, those Roman soldiers then wove together a crown of thorns and placed it upon His head. Putting that upon His head, that would have been painful enough in and of itself. But if you continue on reading Mark the 15th chapter, Mark goes on to tell us that they struck Him in the head with a reed driving those thorns deeper and deeper into his scalp. Of course, it is John's Gospel that tells us as well about the imprints of the nails that would have been driven through his hands and as well through his feet. The very mechanism, the very process by which he would have been affixed and held to that cross. And then it is John 19 and verse 34 that we're told that in that hour following his death, Jesus suffered one final indignity. One final wound as he was pierced in his side, from which outflowed blood and water. Now, I am not a doctor, and I don't know exactly how many pints of blood are supposed to be in the average human body. But I don't think that you really need to know that in order to answer this next question. How much of Jesus' blood did he shed for you? How much of Jesus' own blood did He shed for you? I think the answer is all of it. From the top of His head, literally, all the way down to the drippings at the bottom of His feet, He was covered in the blood that He shed. Now, listen up very carefully here. What this means is, is that means that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we've really got some work to do. Because in just a few minutes, this tray... It's going to be passed. I'm going to grab this one. I'm going to remember this was mine whenever the tray is passed, so don't touch this one. Yeah, I'll probably forget. This tray is going to be passed, and we're going to take out one of these small containers. And you'll notice there's just not very much in there, is it? I mean, it's, it's like a thimble full. It is potent. You know it whenever you drink grape juice. It just it catches your attention. But it doesn't take long to turn your head back, Swallow that down, and then you're done. Which means what we'll have to allow is we'll have to allow this small sampling of juice to represent all of the blood 
All that Jesus did in shedding His blood from the top of His head to the bottom of His feet. You know what that means? That means that within that small little container is a big, big responsibility. We carry a huge responsibility here. And that is why I find that it is helpful to reflect on those five wounds. Those wounds that shed the blood of the covenant. Poured out, Jesus says, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. And just, by the way, just kind of as a side point here. If that cup, if that cup figuratively represents all that Jesus did in the giving of Himself and the shedding of His blood, then the question I want to ask myself is, is can I say that that also represents my whole and complete willingness to give everything I have to Jesus? Or, or would maybe that cup be better used in a literal sense? That that really represents just about how much I'm willing to give to Jesus. Jesus was willing to give everything. I'm willing to give Him just about a thimbleful. That's that self-examination that we're talking about. Those are sobering questions and ideas, but they are the kinds of questions and ideas we are forced to ponder in the Lord's Supper. Six. What might the number six signify as it pertains to the Lord's death? Well, six refers to the six hours that Jesus hung there on the cross. In Mark 15, verses 25 and then down in verse 34, we're given a little bit of a timeline there that they crucified Jesus at the third hour. That would have been right around 9 a.m. And then at the ninth hour, which would have been around 3 p.m., Jesus cried out and began to say His final things for one last time. That means then, if you do the math, that means that for six hours during the busiest part of the day, which would help them achieve maximum humiliation and shame, and as well during the hottest part of the day to achieve maximum pain and agony, Jesus then suffered in ways that almost defy our own explanation and understanding. One writer, lots of writers that are more schooled about this and know the medical side of things have tried to write and put things in words that we can begin to understand. I appreciated what this fellow said. He said, so dehydrated was he that his tongue was swollen. Each time his eyes blinked, it was as if sandpaper was being rubbed across his corneas. His muscles were so exhausted that they quivered like the lips of a child in tears. The nails which pierced his hands were so positioned on the median nerve that pain shot down his arms and through his chest as if they were on fire for six hours straight. He experienced this pain. And then we recall. We recall what Isaiah said in his prophecy in Isaiah 53 and verse 12. That he poured out his soul Unto death. And indeed He did. What more could Jesus have given? What more did He have to offer but six hours of excruciating, humiliating torment for the love of mankind? And yes, that means you. One Lord died between two criminals each bearing the weight of their own cross. While some were preoccupied with their own things, others inflicted wounds upon Him that lasted for six straight hours. 
Which brings us then to the number seven. The last of these aspects of the Lord's death, as we contemplate them in advance of the Lord's Supper, we think then about those seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. Now, we should say that we don't know for certain if these are the only seven statements that Jesus made while He was on the cross, but these are the only seven statements that the Gospel writers have recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Seven very unique statements, each of which tell their own story, but I think these seven statements can be grouped into three distinct categories. First of all, there was the cry of, I thirst. Jesus said He was thirsty. And then there was that statement, that question, that I don't really think Jesus was asking it so much as a question, as He was just making a statement to the crowds that were present as he quoted from the 22nd Psalm, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now I want to ask, what do those two statements tell you about your Savior as He died on the cross? I'll tell you what they tell me. They tell me that it hurt. It hurt Jesus. It hurt Him physically. It hurt Him emotionally. It hurt Him in every way conceivable to have to be the offering for sin that you and I so desperately need. And then what about those next three statements? When Jesus, looking out at the crowds, the people who were killing Him, His murderers, He speaks to the Father and He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as He's having that conversation with the criminal, He turns to Him and He says, Today, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then as he looks down from the cross, he sees his mother, he sees that apostle, that disciple whom he loved, he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. What do those three statements tell you about your Savior? What they tell me is they tell me that he loves. That he loves unconditionally. That while Jesus was experiencing a pain that you and I can really never begin to comprehend, His words continue to express the depth of His love. Love for His crucifiers. Love for that penitent sinner who was begging for mercy. And love for His family, for His mother, and for that man that He loved like a brother. Jesus loves the lost. Jesus loves the saved. Jesus loves everyone. Now that doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved, but you know what? If you're not saved, it's not going to be because Jesus doesn't love you. Jesus' words on the cross just serve to double and triple and quadruple underscore the great depths and riches of His love. And then finally, we don't necessarily know the order of all of these statements. But near the end of those six hours, He said, It is finished. It is finished. The work that I have come and was sent to do, it is finished. And then He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. What do those two statements tell you about Jesus? What they tell me is they tell me that Jesus trusts. That Jesus trusted His Heavenly Father. Jesus Jesus trusted His Father with His birth. He trusted His Father with His life. And in these moments, these final moments, the darkest moments, the moments of death, He did not waver in His trust to the Father for even one moment. This, this is my King. 
This is my Lord. He suffered for me. He loves me. And He shows me that if I, like Him, will put my trust in the Father and what the Father has promised, that just like Jesus, one day He will raise me from the dead, victorious over the grave. He will bring me home to be with Him to reign for all of eternity in heavenly glory. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. In some ways, I suppose it's, it's overly simplistic on my part to, to try and reduce the sacrifice of Jesus to just seven points. But it is a start, isn't it? It does provide for us a start for purposing and for planning, for centering and focusing our hearts and our minds on the memorial that He has left for us that commemorates His death. And in just a couple of moments, we will do just that. But I need to say right now, before we do that, I need to say that if you are not in fellowship with Jesus this morning, then you cannot and you will not enjoy the benefits and the joys of this memorial. Sure, when the trays are passed by, you can... Grab you a pinch of cracker and you could take you a swig of the grape juice. Nobody's going to stop you from doing that. But it won't mean anything. It won't carry with it any significance unless you are in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And that is why, before we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we are going to offer the invitation of Jesus the Christ. We're going to sing a song in just a second. We call it an invitation song. And we're doing, singing that song to encourage you, if you have not yet, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. To repent of your sins, just like that criminal on the cross did and was willing to show us. To be united with Christ in His death in baptism, where your sins will be washed away by the blood of the Lamb. You do that, that will bring you then into fellowship with Christ. You will be added to the saved, to the family of God. And then you can know, you can know firsthand the blessings of having communion with Christ What we want to know is, can we help you this morning to become a Christian? Brother or sister, let me extend an invitation to you as well. It may be that even as I'm preaching this morning, you've been doing some of that self-examination already. And you realize that there is some sin in your life. That it's standing between you and the Lord. It's damaging your fellowship with Christ. And you're pretty sure that in just a few moments, it's going to create real problems of conscience when you're partaking of these emblems of the Lord's Supper. Let's get that fixed. Let's get that fixed right now. Repent, just like that thief on the cross was willing to do. And just as the thief shows us, Jesus is so merciful and is so desirous to forgive those who are penitent and restore them back to a right relationship once again. The table, the table is prepared. The table is going to wait for these next couple of minutes while we sing this song and to give someone or maybe several someones, the opportunity to surrender their life to Jesus and to become a Christian. Are you ready to do that? Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.